1: Today on After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, we are talking to someone familiar to anyone who served in the JAG Corps, probably at any of your services up until at least five, 10 years ago. And it is Mr. Ethics, the SoCo Guru, none other than Steve Epstein himself. Steve, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. I'm not sure after that that introduction, I'm I'm willing to meet your high standards, but I'll try.
1: Steve, you always combine ethics with humility and humor. And I have no doubt that this interview will be as personal as it always was when we got to hear you speak. So I don't think you should feel any pressure whatsoever.
0: Oh, none at all.
1: So Steve, let's go back. Give us sort of an overview of your career.
0: Let me focus at the end of it because I think that's what your podcast is all about and how I ended up into ethics and then from there, into government, and then from into corporate work. You know, thinking about leaving the Jag Corps, basically I didn't start until I was the SJA for NAV Base San Diego. The admiral at the NAV base is known as the Navy's mayor of San Diego because he or she is very involved in outside activity which meant, as his SJA, we had an awful lot of work in ethics, gifts, conflicts of interest, engagements, much more of my time was involved in that than I had spent any time before. That started me getting into the ethics, and I started getting involved with other government agencies. Since it was at the point in time when I started thinking, you know, it's almost time for me to be retired, I needed another tour. I actually sought and uh, got the, the Code 13 ethics and compliance job, which was very interesting and very eye-opening.
1: What time period are we looking at, Steve?
0: We're looking at the early 1990s. At that point in time, they consolidated the Code 13 ethics and compliance job with the Navy General Counsel ethics and compliance job. So we were working in the same office. Basically, I did that for a little over a year. And the Navy General Counsel said, you know, Steve, we would really like you at my shop. Did a little discussion with my detailer who basically said, boy, Steve, we'd love to see you retired now. And I got the message. So off I went to the Navy General Counsel's office, which in that case was very easy. I literally came back to work in the same office. And in doing so, it got me into the other aspects of ethics and compliance on the civilian side of the Department of Navy. And that lasted for about two years when, because I was working so much with all of the DOD ethics officials, that the director of the Standards of Conduct Office presented himself and said, Steve, we have an opening over here and we would really like you to apply. And by the way, it'd be a nice promotion for you. Well, you know, when you get an invitation like that, it's hard to say no. I knew the people in that office, and I knew the director, and that was a really good office. So off I went from Navy General Counsel over to DOD General Counsel. And I was there for several years, finally fleeting up to become the director of SoCo. Doing that, of course, you really got the opportunity to work throughout the Department of Defense on standards of conduct for government ethics. And because DOD is a very big agency, I got to work with all of the federal agencies, particularly those in the Washington area and got to know the ethics counselors and the problems, which was much greater than what
1: we found in the DOD environment. How long were you in the DOD SoCo office? 12 years. So 12 years at DOD SoCo, a few years at Navy GC and Navy Code 13. Tell us about the decision to leave the Federal Service and go into the corporate world.
0: That was very easy, although I really did enjoy SoCo, and I had really no great plans to leave it. Challenging work. I was lucky I was working for some really excellent general counsels and deputy general counsels in the Department of Defense. We had amassed a wonderful office there in the Standards of Conduct office. So there was absolutely no reason for me to leave. But the only inclination I had was the some of the work was becoming routine in the sense that done it before and I was ready to do new stuff. My exit was facilitated by a headhunter. A very nice young lady called me up and explained that she was looking for people to go in the corporate side with my expertise. After a few interviews, that much solved it. She was actually hiring for Coopers. They needed someone familiar with government ethics because they had opened an office in the Washington area that was now contracting with the U.S. government. Coopers, 99% of it uh, deals with corporations and clients. But they wanted to open up an office providing consultative services for the US government. And they needed somebody to come in and tell them how to operate, which was very good because I remember one conversation talking with a couple of the partners about a potential contract with a government agency. And the partner was up in New York and we said, Well, this is what we're trying to do. And he basically said, Hey, 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 no problem here. I'll just come down to Washington. And I'll take that government contracting officer out to lunch. And I said, well, maybe I understand now why you hired me. They weren't used to this environment. They weren't used to or particularly knowledgeable in the government, what we'll call ethics rules, primarily involving conflicts of interest, post-employment restrictions, and gifts. And so they really said, well, we need somebody here to get us and keep us out of trouble, which let's face it, as you know, as a compliance officer, that's a big part of your job is to keep your client out of trouble. I spent two years there. And then um, by happenstance was was walking down the street in Roslyn, Virginia. And I bumped into one of my old co-workers who worked with me in the DOD general counsel's office. We struck up a conversation and he said, you know, Steve, where are you working now? And I told him, would you be interested in moving? He was now part of the Boeing law department. They were looking for someone to do ethics and compliance at Boeing. And I discovered that the office was going to be a 12-minute drive from home rather than the hour and a quarter drive I was having to press Waterhouse Coopers. And that pretty much settled the employment question right there. I was hired by the Boeing company to be the chief counsel for ethics and compliance at their office here in Washington, actually it's in Arlington, Virginia. That's where I spent then the next nine years, finally retiring about two years
1: ago. So, Steve, for those of the JAGs out there that are listening, that are guys like me thinking about what they're going to do when they retire, what is the big difference between ethics and compliance? Could you kind of educate us and them on that?
0: It's a big difference. And the difference is government versus corporate. So, let's take the terminology in government, with not just DOD, but all of government. It's called ethics. In just call it government ethics. When you go to the corporate side, all of those things which we discuss in the government under the ethics hat, in other words, gratuities, conflicts of interest, post-employment restrictions, and things like that, in the corporate world, they come under the title compliance. That's the compliance element of ethics and compliance in the outside world. Ethics in the corporate setting means something entirely different, and we know it in the military as leadership. So let me flesh that out a little bit. In the corporate world, compliance really is the lawyer's world. You know, we're talking about a rules-based environment, and we're talking about you know traditionally it's conflicts of interest, it's gifts, it's financial interests, and matters like that. But it also expands because compliance is the adherence to existing rules and laws. Again, the lawyer's world. And once you get into the corporate side, you find all sorts of subsets of compliance. For example, import-export regulations. If you're dealing with lobbying, you've got the federal, you know, the FEC regulations. Political activities come under the, the FEC regulations. You mentioned earlier about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Again, another specific set of compliance regulations and HR and EEO regulations, which occur in the HR world. Each company sort of divides it up separately, many cases depending on the expertise of their personnel. In one of these jobs, I signed up to do basically what we would call government compliance. The first day on the job, I had a meeting with my boss. And, of course, we talked about what his expectations were as far as you know, ethics goes, or compliance goes, I should say, within the company. And he said, fine. I was all fired up, ready to go. And I was walking toward the door. He said, oh, Steve, wait a minute. I forgot to tell you. We seem to have some issues with some foreign governments, and we seem to have fallen under some practices involved in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Would you take care of that for me, please? As we learned in the Navy, the answer is, aye, aye, sir. I'll be happy to do that. Actually, I knew a little bit about the FCPA, so I felt comfortable, at least, at least I could spell it. I turned to go out the door and he said, oh, hey, one more thing. <laughs> it seems the other day we had a visit by an FBI agent. We really need somebody to ride herd on that. Will you take care of that as well? And I said, well, Aye, you aye, know, sir. I'll be happy to, but you should know I have absolutely no expertise in that, but I'm willing to learn. And he said, good. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. And oh, by the way, uh, we do have outside counsel to help you learn, but we want you to ride herd on it. And again, the response was aye, aye, sir. And I went out the door. So you know, there it is. I came in expecting one set of compliance and discovered, well, yeah, that's only a small part of it. It's much bigger than that in different areas. When I was at Boeing, here I was at working in the office in Washington, where guess what? All of Boeing's government relation folks are. And the spillover there was, oh, by the way, somebody needs to give legal advice to the lobbyists to make sure we comply with the Federal Election Commission and those regulations as well. So again, in the wonderful world of compliance, there are a lot of subsets that you need to know that they're out there and be prepared to to move into.
1: As you were describing that, to me, it sounds like an SJA job that you have your bread and butter stuff, but depending on the command and what they do, you end up having to develop expertise and all these other subsets that you were describing. It sounds very familiar.
0: Absolutely. Again, you you hit the nail on the head here because of our our SJA experience. That's exactly what happens at your different duty stations. It's never going to be the same you're always going to have new challenges and you're never going to be able to accurately anticipate what those challenges are going to be. Now, again, I was the chief counsel for ethics and compliance. Now I've talked about compliance. Let's talk about ethics. As I've mentioned earlier, ethics is really what we knew as leadership. And in the corporate world, it has very little to do with compliance. It's really building a culture. And I draw the analogy which I think is the the best one about the Marine Corps. In the Marine Corps, you have Marines who behave in a certain manner, not necessarily because there's a rule or a regulation, but they know that the expectations of their superiors or of the Marine Corps as a whole expects that they will behave in a certain way. That's exactly what ethics is trying to do in a corporate environment. They're trying to build a culture. Now I got to tell you, I've seen nobody who succeeds as well as the Marine Corps does. But then again, it's a different environment. You know, when we talk about a culture, what are we talking about? We're talking about a culture in which integrity, transparency, and accountability is what motivates people and basically gives them guidance. And how do you build this culture? Well, it's primarily going to be a function of education and expectations and Within this environment, you can see that the lawyers do not have a special expertise. And so therefore, you're going to find a lot of the folks driving the ethics environment and corporate world are not going to be lawyers. They're going to be folks from HR, they're going to be engineers, and frankly, the people who do the best in my mind are good program managers because you're building a program which is trying to create a culture. So you're doing training and education. You're doing, it's sort of like an ombudsman program. In which You have ethics officers work with the employees to talk to them, to encourage them to do the right thing, to answer their questions, giving them some sort of sense of privacy and confidentiality and so that they say, hey, I was working yesterday and Billy who works next to me left early and then Tom, his buddy, checked out for him four hours later. I don't think that's right. The idea, again, is that's a question of integrity. It's a question of transparency and accountability. In other words, encouraging everyone in the company, from the top to the bottom, to hold themselves accountable to the expectations of the company and hold others accountable. That's really the goal of basically building this ethical culture. And you should know, too, that compliance existed many, many years before ethics showed up. And in fact, when I was at SoCo, we did compliance 99% of the time. Now, when I talk to uh, the folks back in SoCo, they're saying, yeah, we're getting into this ethics a little bit. We're actually integrating some of these ethical concepts into our training. So telling, again, people, it's not just a rules-based culture. It's also our expectations, you know, things which we expect you to do, to do the right thing. That's the big difference for folks making that transition from U.S. government to corporate side, you have to be aware that there are two very different missions, and you need to know the language.
1: You know, as you highlighted, there are ethics officials or compliance officials, and then there's ethics slash compliance counsel. How do those two link up within the corporate business setting?
0: I'm having a hard time with it because there's really not that much of a distinction. Now, mm-hmm. within the corporate world, the big difference is, are you part of the general counsel's office or are you not? In many cases, the compliance and ethics offices are part of the general counsel's office. In many other cases, they are not. And the difference, of course, is that attorneys can work with the attorney-client privilege. So they can do investigations which are privileged and therefore not available otherwise. So that is the big difference. You know, Are you part of the general counsel's office and are you not? I would use that as your main distinction rather than saying, are you an ethics attorney or are you an ethics official? When I went out to Coopers, I was the ethics and compliance official. I was not part of the general counsel's office. And for those of us who have been Part of the general counsel's office, meaning the JAG's office, for our entire careers, it's a mental reset. Every day I had to remind myself no, I'm not an attorney. I'm not part of the general counsel's office. If I want to do some of these things, like conduct an investigation, which is under the auspices of the attorney client privilege, I need to go to the general counsel and basically work as part of that office become formally assigned to conduct that investigation. While I'm there, let's talk about that. Again, part of the, the big world outside is investigations. In the corporate world, your compliance world and your ethics world, when you're dealing with employees, a fairly large part of all of these offices is the investigations. And in general, you will have a separate set Of investigators Mm -hmm. who are expertise in those areas. Give the example of Boeing. I mean, for human HR and EEO investigations, there were a specific set of investigators. For investigations involving quality control and quality, again, a specialized set of investigations. If there were investigations regarding conflicts of interest and we would call compliance. Another set of investigators. And on top of this whole pyramid was the law department. Because when a, an investigation was of such a sensitivity, generally the general counsel would say, I want this investigation to be done by the law department. And the law department had specific investigators. And because they were being done under the auspices of the, the law department, the attorney client privilege uh, and the the attorney work product privilege also applied to these investigations.
1: So Steve, you explained to us how you got from government service over to the corporate business side. What advice would you give to a JAG leaving the service now who thinks, hey, this is something I think I would enjoy doing. How do they go about getting their foot in that door?
0: I think everyone realizes that generally Headhunters and folks like that don't go beating on the doors, uh, jags, because they really don't understand what goes on in the military. My recommendation to everybody is, and this is what I was able to do when I was at SoCo, was to get involved with private industry. You do that through several associations. One is ECI with the Ethics Compliance Initiative. The other you know well, SCCE, Society for Corporate Compliance and Ethics. And the third one is DII, which is the Defense Industry Initiative. Now, I was fortunate enough, and what I'm encouraging folks to do is anytime you have an opportunity to deal with these organizations, raise your hand, volunteer, even if it's become a panel member, which is a great way to start, because the government is such a big entity uh, as as a consumer, in many cases, of their services, that when they have conferences, they want somebody from the government to explain government ethics, to explain how to do business with the government, to explain the structure of the government. This was something which I did, particularly while I was at SoCo, which is very beneficial to me. I have no doubt that the, the headhunter who came knocking at my door, and by the way, I, After the first one started showing up at these other jobs, headhunters became quite common, looking for me, but also it gave me the opportunity to say, well, I'm not interested right now, but I know several people who are available and here are their names and contact information. But the bottom line, going back to this point, is that by participating on these panels and in these, uh, these meetings of these organizations, you get a lot of exposure. Number one, by sitting on a panel, you know, supposedly you're supposed to know something about the topics, so that helps right there. And number two, you actually get to meet your counterparts from the corporate world. This is very beneficial professionally as well. Go into that in the sense that you know, once you build this connection with uh, corporate folks, then when something starts going wrong, you can pick up the phone and say hey, we have a problem here. And the beauty of that is that you're talking to somebody with whom you already have a relationship, who knows who you are. So that first contact is not going to be, boy, did you guys just screw up? It's more of, hey, we got a problem here. And this involves things like, for example, unfortunately, I had this occasion more than once where a company would offer some gratuities to our employees, which they could not accept. And our government employees said, I don't feel good about that. Let me talk to my lawyer. I happen to be the lawyer. I would call up the ethics person for that company and say, hey, Judy, here's what's going on You know, in your plant in St. Louis. So-and-so is basically offering you know, our guys meals. We can't accept it. And I know you don't want to do it. Let me tell you, the ethics counselor on the other side was, thank you, thank you, thank you, Steve. This is the information we need. So, we can get to our people, point out they're doing the wrong thing, give them a little bit more training, and solve this problem because before it's something that has to be investigated, but we have the FBI in here asking questions. Probably a longer way to answer your question you wanted. The answer to that is get involved as much as you can with ethics and compliance associations and groups.
1: Steve, is there value in getting the CCEP? certification.
0: And I'm going to give you a a terrible answer. I really don't know. I didn't know it because, I mean, I didn't get it because by the time it started to exist, I was already in what I knew was my last job. You know, like you, I figured it wasn't going to be too difficult, but you know, it was an effort which I didn't feel was necessary. Now I got to tell you, while at Boeing, we hired a lot of people and I was on those hiring boards. And certainly having that certification helps. We didn't disqualify people because they didn't have it. But on the other hand, it says, OK, here's some, somebody who's serious enough about the compliance and ethics world that they're willing to go out and get certified. So I would encourage folks to do it. But is it essential? I would say no. But yeah. you got to remember, too, I left the company three years ago. And so I don't know how much because a lot more people now have that. So I don't know if it's become now the requirement or not.
1: I think your answer is in line with what everybody else has told me. And that ranges from retired Jags who've gone into the corporate world, retired Jag who sat for the C or excuse me, the SCCE, uh, Academy, which I did just a couple of weeks ago. Your relief at Boeing said the same thing. Having that on your resume, it can't hurt is basically right. what I was told. And it's an investment, right? It's, yep. you know, it's it's not cheap, but yep. it does get you membership into the SECe for a couple of years and puts it on there that, yeah, I know, look, not only have I done it in the military, I can talk to that, but I also know on the civilian side, what it means to you. So I can speak that language too. Yep. I think so. you, I, mean, I,
0: I agree with you a hundred percent.
1: What are the questions that I have not asked you that are so obvious that you're like, gee, I can't believe Tom didn't ask this question?
0: Tom, again, going back to your initial thing, how do you make the road, the transition from JAG to corporate side easier? I've been thinking about that. And the first thing I would suggest is don't disregard going into the government. The government has lots of ethics and compliance professionals, and generally, coming out of DoD puts you in great stead. Because to be quite honest, I think the DoD ethics and compliance program is probably one of the very best of any federal agency. You're making that transition from military to civilian as part of the U.S. as part of still the U.S. government. And I'm not talking necessarily only about DoD general counsel or Navy general counsel. I'm talking about any of the federal agencies. It's a very easy transition. Yes, you will get paid more. It really sets you up for further expansion. In other words, by going into the government side of it, again, it's very easy because all these government folks are involved in the ethics and compliance initiative of SCCE and PII. And it allows you to get that exposure to the corporate side And it allows you to get out of the uniform and stop talking about somebody who's a captain or a commander or things like that. That's the first thing I would suggest. The second thing is, and I didn't do this because LinkedIn came in after I was pretty much where I was going to be, but I've talked to people who have had amazing success using LinkedIn. One friend of mine who's a Naval Academy graduate, he changes jobs about every three or four years, it seems chases them all the time. But the first thing he does when he starts looking at a new place to work, whether it's in government or corporate, is he gets, goes on LinkedIn and finds somebody from the academy who works there. Using that contact, he finds out, number one, whether it's a good place to work. Number two, who his potential supervisor is going to be and whether you want to work for that person. And a lot of inside information about the company. Get on LinkedIn and use that connection. I mean, if it's a Navy JAG connection, whatever connections you can derive it'll certainly be valuable.
1: Again, Steve, this is helpful because we talk about compliance, but we really don't define it. For someone who has walked on both sides of that fence, this is invaluable insight for judge advocates who are approaching the retirement date or separation date and think they might have what it takes to work in compliance, but are afraid to ask.
0: So, oh, hey, I got one more thing to, to add there. It's somewhat tangential, but because I, I know you asked earlier about resumes and my experience with resumes, both as using my own and reviewing resumes of applicants for jobs I'm trying to fill. My experience has been that I write the resume to match the position description. Everybody's going to come out with, okay, I want somebody, the position description that they're looking for is someone who will do the following 10 things rather than have one resume to fit it all, again, because of the wonderful benefits we have with word processors, I would always start with the position description to write my resume. And this is increasingly important as companies use artificial intelligence and other computer screening, because what they want to see is they're looking for certain words in certain places. Let's face it, you've got to be accurate in your resume. But if the resume says, we are looking for someone to deal with ethics in a federal agency, and man, that would be my first thing. This is my expertise in doing that. This is my training in doing that. That would be the first one. And then they say, partial time, you know, sometime doing federal FCPA work, all right? I'd say, yes, I've done that. But again, being accurate, you know, I'd say I did it at this period of time and, and how much you did of it. You know, if in fact you've had a lot of experience doing export import controls, but they don't want that, then I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time impressing them about you've done export and import. You know, sure. I would put that at the end of the resume, just as a, you know, also by the way, I did this, but the, the key is to write that resume to mirror that position.
1: Steve, I was going to say, for my time, all the time I was worked with you when you were, in the DOD SoCo office, I think first and foremost, you were a teacher and you haven't lost a step when it comes to that. And I've taken away a few nuggets of wisdom here. So I think your streak for educating and teaching people continues. So thank you for your time.
0: Well, thank you, Tom, for the kind words.
1: Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.